Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to this virtual Commonwealth Club program focused on the coronavirus crisis with former FDA Commissioner Dr. Margaret Hamburg. I'm Gloria Duffy, President and CEO of the Commonwealth Club and our moderator for this program. Due to coronavirus, the Commonwealth Club has suspended its in-person programming through at least the end of April. Our building in San Francisco is closed down, but we're actively providing our audiences with virtual program, including this one. You can learn about these offerings at the Commonwealth Club's website, commonwealthclub.org. Their list there is being updated frequently with new programs that you can view digitally. I'm coming to you today from Santa Clara, California, where we're staying close to home, and Dr. Hamburg is in Washington, D.C. This program is part of the Commonwealth Club's virtual series addressing the myriad impacts of COVID-19 on our community and society at large. It's supported by the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative and a collaborative of local funders and donors. We're very grateful for their support and hope others will follow their example to support the club during these uncertain times. To our audience viewing via YouTube, we want you to be involved in the program, as is our standard method for Commonwealth Club events. If you'd like to submit questions to me, add your questions to the comments section, and I will try to integrate as many of them as possible into the program. And now it's my great pleasure to introduce today's speaker, Dr. Margaret Hamburg. Hello, Margaret. How are you? I'm fine. Thank you. Pleasure to be with you. And you as well. As America grapples with the rapidly growing cases of coronavirus, many questions exist. What's the status of vaccines and possible drugs to mitigate or prevent COVID-19? How will our healthcare systems across the country handle the increasingly large numbers of those who are sick? And if we get beyond this wave, what about the next one? How can we prepare for future pandemics or other biological threats of this nature? Joining us today is someone in a position to provide insight into those questions. Dr. Margaret Hamburg served as FDA commissioner under President Obama from 2009 to 2015, an unusually long period of service for FDA commissioners. She's also the former health commissioner for the city of New York. She is an internationally recognized leader in public health and medicine and currently serves as foreign secretary of the National Academy of Medicine and chair of the Nuclear Threat Initiative Bioadvisory Group. Dr. Hamburg previously served as assistant director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases at the National Institutes of Health. As foreign secretary of the National Academy of Medicine, the health arm of the National Academy of Sciences, Engineering and Medicine. Dr. Hamburg serves as Senior Advisor on International Matters. She is an elected member of the Council on Foreign Relations and the National Academy of Medicine. She earned her MD from Harvard Medical School. Welcome, Dr. Hamburg. Thank you. I thought we were going to spend the whole program on my bio. Well, we'll get to many questions, both mine and the audience's. Okay, great. So. Um, Let's talk about that question uh, right now of equipping the hospital and the healthcare system. How are we doing? What should we be doing differently? Well, we are struggling. It's it's a tragic situation, but hopefully we um, 
are really mobilized now um, to make a difference now and going forward. One of the great concerns as this outbreak has unfolded was that uh, with continuing spread and more cases, we were going to have an overwhelming of our healthcare system beyond what hospitals and clinics could could normally handle for sure, but even um, under emergency crisis situations. That's why we've been doing the social distancing. That's what people mean when they talk about flattening the curve. It means trying to make sure that there aren't so many cases that will overwhelm the system, but we're we're seeing that happening. Um, New York City area, New Jersey and New York City, um, really, uh, you know, where it's most pronounced, but other hot spots as well. And we're unfortunately seeing healthcare workers without the medical tools that they need to really provide the best possible care for patients from masks to gowns to gloves and eye goggles to ventilators, which is really an important tool for those patients that are most seriously ill. So there have been a number of studies and reports, expert panels in recent years about the possibility of pandemics uh, and what to do to prepare for them. Could you tell us a little bit more about the thought and the work in recent years about how to be prepared for a situation like we have today? Whose advice has not been followed and might maybe should have been followed? Well, it's such an important question, and it's a bit of a painful one because I've literally been working on um, bio-threat preparedness um, for decades now, uh, starting back in the 90s when I was health commissioner in New York City. Um, You know, we've never been in the midst of a global pandemic like this one. And I have to stress that because that makes it so much harder. There's so much uncertainty, so much we don't know about this virus um, and how it spreads, how lethal it is, um, the specifics of of, uh, transmission from asymptomatic uh, individuals, even the incubation period, and who is most vulnerable to serious disease. And we've never had this kind of um, overwhelming of our healthcare system in other past, you know, significant disease outbreaks, even a bad flu season. And of course, we're seeing some overlap of the flu season and this new COVID-19. But for many years, you know, there have been efforts recognizing that the threat of emerging and resurging infectious diseases is very serious and having experienced, you know, a range of outbreaks from uh, H1N1, you know, a a flu pandemic potential, uh, uh, SARS, MERS, Ebola, and of course now this. Um, So government working with other stakeholders have been developing plans back when I served as an assistant secretary at Health and Human Services in the Clinton administration, my office was in charge of um, the the pandemic flu plan development. Um, And then we also started some important elements of our current um, public health preparedness, including the strategic national stockpile. But over the years, there's been intermittent commitment to these efforts 
we go from a crisis to complacency. And, uh, you know, unfortunately, this may be the one, you know, that fully wakes us up. Hopefully we won't hit the snooze button after uh, we get through this um, global COVID-19 pandemic. And we will really make sure that our nation and all nations of the world are better prepared and that we prepare in ways that are sustainable because you never know um, when and where the next uh, infectious disease threat of pandemic potential may emerge. What would be the steps we would take to prepare? What should we have done to prepare for this? And out of this, what steps would you say the the U.S. and other countries around the globe should be taking to be better prepared? Well, first of all, you have to have situational awareness. You need to know what's happening. Um, and this is a global endeavor. We need to really make sure that we've got the kinds of global disease surveillance systems that will allow us to uh, recognize an emerging threat wherever it may come from. And then the, the public health tools to be able to actually quickly identify what, what is this emerging infectious disease threat? Um, and to, to understand, you know, critical aspects of this new microbial threat so that, uh, systems can be put into place first to try to contain it as close to its emergence and as quickly as possible. Um, and then, you know, to begin the process of, of ramping up other important, uh, systems for control, including, you know, really harnessing all of the advances in science and technology, uh, today that should, uh, better position us to be able to develop the diagnostic tests, the drugs, and the vaccines needed, uh, to combat, uh, pandemics of, of various kinds, and we're certainly pushing hard to try to get those important medical tools available uh, against this global COVID-19 threat. So how would we undertake those steps? Would it be more strategic stockpiled materials? Would it be crisis response systems? Would it be uh, fast tracking for vaccines. What, what, what would be on the list of things to do differently so that we would be better prepared the next time around? Yeah. Well, many elements of an appropriate response, you know, have been mobilized, some much too slowly, um, unfortunately, in my view, because, you know, we, we did lose valuable time in the beginning, but we could also see weaknesses in our system. Uh, and you, you know, can never be fully prepared for the threat of the unknown. But, you know, I mentioned already the importance of disease surveillance and information sharing, uh, the, the mobilization of, of resources to support, um, the public health response, first locally, but, but across, um, other countries as, as a virus, uh, or other microbe. Um, makes its, its, its spread. Um, we need to be able to support our healthcare system. In this case, you've probably heard talk about the strategic national stockpile, which has been mobilized that has various medical, um, 
uh, a kinds of medical equipment in it, uh, including ventilators, but it also has um, drugs and, and other kinds of medical products that, that might be needed in a epidemic or pandemic response, but not enough to meet all of the needs. And so then you need a system to help um, procure and distribute um, what is needed to address the critical gaps and to make sure that we have a dynamic process as an outbreak may make a march across a region or a country. Importantly, and what I think is another area where we have been slow is you need an all of government response. You need all of the departments and agencies of government working together in a coordinated way. And that means you do need a game plan, you need a strategy, and you need accountability. You know, need to define who's responsible for what, how it's going to get done. And then you have to make sure that that work, in fact, is going forward. You also critically need to find a way to enable the private sector, the academic community, um, not-for-profit organizations, um, religious organizations, all of the partners and stakeholders to be able to engage in that plan as well. You need clear, consistent communication, and you need leadership that is willing to, to talk truth to the public, tell them you know, what is happening, what, how things may unfold, even if it's bad news. But you also have to give some hope. You have to show that, that there is a path forward and you have to, you know, make clear that we're all working together to achieve a set of, of critical goals so that we can come through such a catastrophic event as the one that we're currently experiencing. In your best <clears throat> imagination, how would that be structured at the national level? Would there be a czar? Would there be a national security uh, official? Who would be in charge of that consistent messaging, coordinating a plan, et cetera? Well, I think it, it's going to be a multifaceted strategy. And I do think you mentioned um, in your question about the National Security Council, one of the things that has happened over the years is that each new administration thinks they don't need a health focus on the National Security Council because they they don't really see how health is part of national security necessarily coming from a, a different perspective and set of experiences. President Clinton was actually the first person to put a, a health uh, desk into the National Security Council. It was dismantled at the beginning of the Bush administration and built up again after anthrax um, occurred um, and 9-11 and uh, the threat of pandemic flu. It was again um, dismantled when the Obama administration began and rebuilt um, and quite robustly with experiences around uh, the H1N1 uh, threat at the very beginning of the Obama administration and then Ebola and Zika and some other concern. And Trump had an expert team on the National Security Council um, for a period of time, but unfortunately it was dismantled um, not that 
soon before um, the first cases of this novel coronavirus began to emerge. And, and, you know, one never knows. It's easy to look back and be a Monday morning quarterback. But, but having a group like that working closely with key players in the White House can be very important in terms of being a hub, monitoring what's going on, being able to talk with other countries, you know, sometimes through secure channels to get information that might not be publicly available. Um, and we were missing that. And then it took a while to really get a, a team, you know, the coronavirus workforce um, or task force um, that is now in existence that day in and day out was working on this task. And, you know, that was really both um, coordinating efforts within government and working with, with others, but also communicating to the American people. And I, I know from the experience with Ebola during the Obama administration that it was very, very helpful when President Obama named uh, Ebola's czar, who really knew how government worked and also had experience um, managing in the political sphere, as well as a deep appreciation of the importance of expertise. Sounds like such a position should come back to stay. Now that we've had this experience and several other experiences leading up to this. I think so. And, you know, when I was answering the last question, I mentioned about valuing expertise. And I think, you know, that's another strong lesson that we must learn, that we have to mobilize the best and the brightest wherever they are, you know, across sectors and, of course, across borders, because this is a global concern. We have to really be be bringing information to bear as we make policy decisions and put programs in place. We can't just sort of pick and choose on the basis of either anecdote or wishful thinking. We have to look at what does the evidence tell us about what should be done and how best to do it. And when we don't know, we, we need to seek guidance from others. Um, and we also have to structure our work so that we can have a sort of a, a continual learning uh, environment um, to inform what we're doing and make course corrections. But if ever there was a time for us to really mobilize the incredible resources that we have in this country in public health and medicine and science, along with so much expertise in other critical areas, including, you know, expertise on um, on supply chains and, um, you know, uh, providing uh, services and critical services and goods. But, you know, we need to have really a comprehensive, integrated uh, approach that that draws on best practices and, and evidence. So um, let's talk about testing for a moment. Okay. To be handicapped by not having good data at this point and not being able to do contact tracing. Could you talk a little bit about the testing situation? Where are we making progress with that? What kind of testing should we be doing? Uh, that just seems to be the root of a lot of the problem. Yes. Uh, unfortunately, it has been an area of concern and where uh, the availability of tests 
has been markedly delayed, and I think it 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 has put us behind where we would want to be, where we should be. You ideally want to have a couple of different kinds of tests. You want to have a test that will enable you to know if someone is actively infected, if they have the virus. Um, and as we know with this um, novel coronavirus and the disease it causes, that more than in some other diseases, you can be asymptomatic and um, mm. and actually spread it. But the important thing is to really identify who's infected, and especially early on in the outbreak when the number of cases are smaller, the idea is to identify those who are infected, put them into isolation, then do contact tracing of those who had contact with the, that individual and figure out if they've been infected and, and, um, and you know, quarantine them or isolate them as appropriate um, in order to, you know, sort of stop spread to the greatest degree possible. You in the best of all possible worlds, want to have a test that's easy to do, inexpensive, rapid, and great if you can do it as close to where the patients are as possible so that you don't have both the sick and the, the worried well or the possibly infected coming into an already overwhelmed healthcare system for testing. And uh, and then the last kind of test that you really want is what's called an antibody test or a serology test, which enables you to identify those people who, in fact, were infected, but now have mounted an immune response against the, the virus, presumably no longer um, carry the virus. And that will enable you potentially to tell people you know, you can go back into the healthcare setting if you're a healthcare worker. Go back um, to the front lines if you're a policeman or or um, other first responders. And it may be a crucial tool as we think about sort of moving out of this period of social distancing back into a more normal um, uh, work setting. So, so we need an array of tests, and now we're starting to see those tests approved. And, you know, there's some lags in availability, but I think we're going to be in a better place. The delay in getting there is another question, and I don't want to talk for too long, but that's something else we, we could explore. You know, you and I were talking a couple of days ago, and I was wondering why Silicon Valley, where I live, is such a hotspot. And there is possible factors like the amount that people travel, the international nature of our population here. But our county executive, Jeff Smith, has said, we actually don't know. We have no idea because of the lack of testing and the lack of ability to identify the first carriers and who they had contact with and how it actually spread. So it's, it seems like a real uh, a lack. Tell us about the testing, the self-testing, for instance. Mm -hmm. You mentioned the need to keep the worried well and the those who have it away from one another. Uh, how is it going, this new uh, self-testing uh, possibility? Well, the idea of having, you know, a home test, um, you know, is very appealing for that reason. You probably ultimately will need to sort of partner that with another kind of test that will probably be a little bit more accurate. Um, but, but, you know, to be able to test people 
in their home or in a, a, a setting that isn't part of the, the formal healthcare system uh, enables this unburdening of the healthcare system that I was talking about. But, you know, the bigger issue that you've raised is that because we were slow to testing, we were slow to recognize the magnitude and urgency of this unfolding outbreak. And so we didn't mobilize all of the other systems that needed to be activated in as timely way as we might have. And I think we also weren't able to communicate to the public as accurately as as we all would have liked what was really happening and what to expect. And it's interesting, South Korea is often in the news about you know how much testing they're doing. And it is surprising in some ways that they had their first case in South Korea the same day that we had our first case in the United States, but they really mobilized very, very differently. And part of that, I think, was because they had had a recent outbreak of a related coronavirus, the Middle East Respiratory Syndrome, or MERS, back in 2015, and they'd also been quite hard hit by SARS, um, which was the first of the really serious coronavirus outbreaks um, that we've witnessed as a globe. So I think they weren't as complacent as we were. They saw these new cases emerging, and then they in China, they saw one uh, in their own country, and and they moved into action. And I think there's a big lesson to be learned there. So how how far are we from a pretty universally available home test? You know, the home test, you know, maybe is a little bit of a distraction here in our discussion. I, and I can't tell you exactly how far we are. I know that there are um, home tests that have been developed, and I, I think there may be uh, some approved and in use in other parts of the world. Um, but what we need is a a, a, a rapid, reliable, um, accessible test um, to tell us who's infected and who isn't. It doesn't have to be a home test, but it should be one that's easy to do and can give you an answer quickly so that, you know, just as you can go to an urgent care, you know, down the street from you in a pharmacy and get tested for flu, we want to be able to do that for COVID-19. And we, we don't want the kind of delays that put people into limbo now and there there are some sadly increasing backlogs i've been hearing sometimes up to 8 or 9 days to get results because the labs are flooded in some instances but the fundamental test also takes uh several days to get the results back with some of the early tests so we need to be moving towards that rapid um more accessible test and we need to be sure you know there are a couple of other looming problems and you know, every time a, a problem begins to declare itself, we need to be all over it, all hands on deck to find the solution before it turns into a crisis. And we already are having shortages with the um, the swabs to do the tests and with the reagents to do the tests. So again, this is where uh, 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 COVID-19 czar should be stepping up to the plate, developing a strategy to make sure 
that that we have what we're needed, what's needed, and that it goes where the requirements are. And, you know, we just cannot fail on those kinds of issues, and particularly on issues like the ventilators and the the um the masks and gowns and goggles, et cetera, that the first line workers need. Each hospital shouldn't be in the middle of trying to provide critical and demanding care be also calling around trying to find where they can get additional supplies or or trying to um, outcompete another hospital in their community for a ventilator. And governors shouldn't be doing the same with other governors in other states. We do need a national strategy, a plan, and a commitment to work together in a coordinated way um, to get these things out there, make sure that they are used, and reduce the number of deaths and manage um, the sick who, you know, deserve our best possible care. So who should that czar be? Where should they sit? What kind of qualifications should they have? Well, that is a good question. Of course, we've got some experts and some very good people that are part of the um, coronavirus task force. But, you know, poor Dr. Fauci, who actually um, was my boss very early in my career. And I must say, I learned a lot from him. um, And I'm more grateful to him than ever um, as he takes on this challenging role today. But he shouldn't, you know, have to do it all. And and Dr. Burks, you know, is doing yeoman service and so many others. Um, in all honesty, when I was working on the Ebola response back in the um, the Obama years, uh, 2014, 2015, uh, you know, we were we were going forward, and you know, I think uh, departments and agencies were doing a good job, but it was a less coordinated response and putting in that Ebola czar um, was a very good idea and it proved extremely effective. When Ron Klain, who took it on, was named, my first response, and I've told him this, was actually negative um, because Ebola was becoming very political and I felt like, uh, you know, that wasn't helpful. It was adding, you know, new layers of complexity to an already challenging problem. And I thought, we don't want someone who is already labeled as a political operative taking on this, this critical role. But I was completely wrong and he did a fantastic job. Um, why he was so good was number one, incredibly smart and capable, um, with good common sense. In addition, he knew how government worked. He knew how to knock heads when needed and how to cajole, but he knew how to make the machinery of government work. And he knew how, coming from the executive branch, to work with the other parts of government, importantly Congress. And he also knew how to reach out to the private sector and to other uh, stakeholders. And it really made a difference. And he knew how to rely on the best possible experts and to seek them out and to use them wisely. So you're involved, you're the former FDA commissioner, you're involved in different medical societies. Couldn't the medical profession and uh, former officials and so on come together and tell the administration that it's necessary to have uh, a, a, a coronavirus czar and put forward some suggestions? 
Yeah, well, I think, you know, it's not necessarily that you need one person who is the czar, although, you know, certainly in my experience, I could see the benefit, but you do need, you know, a, a, a dedicated, clearly defined leadership team and you, you, you need a clearly defined, uh, strategic approach and a plan as well. Um, and, I think it it took a little while to really pull that together and it's been changing some over time. I would say that there are many organizations from the national academies to um, uh, various kinds of medical, public health and scientific professionals to other groups um, uh, from community-based organizations to international organizations that are all galvanized to do their part. And, and it is making a difference. I serve on a standing committee for the National Academies of Science, Engineering, and Medicine uh, that was established actually at the request of Kelvin Drogemeyer, the director of the Office of um, Science and Technology Policy in the White House, um, to be able to to rapidly respond to critical questions that emerge as the uh, novel coronavirus uh, outbreak here in 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 the U.S. Um, continues to unfold, and so this group of individuals uh, on this standing committee with with different backgrounds and expertise um, are called on to to bring their knowledge to bear to answer a, a question, you know and it might range from, uh, you know, what is what is known about the science of social distancing to how what do we know about um, the persistence of of um, active virus on different kinds of surfaces um, or respiratory droplet versus aerosol spread. So, you know, that's an example that I think is very important, sort of backstopping the the ability of um, the government leadership team. Uh, to have the best information that they need. And there are many groups out there, um, and it's been interesting to watch, that are trying to help with the supply chain issues, the procurement of critical medical equipment, and and trying to identify where it should go. But in an ideal world, um, you would have that kind of mobilization of whatever resources are out there, but you would actually have a sort of a a blueprint for action that those efforts would then uh, be applied to instead of a lot of fragmented efforts that may not be as efficient or as successful as possible. Let's talk a little bit about treatments and vaccines. Mm -hmm. So the FDA, uh, how is it performing today? Uh, how are, what about vaccine development? Is it on the fastest track it can be on? What about treat development of treatments? There are a lot of different drugs and treatments that are being discussed from remdesivir to uh, a, a number of others. So how are we doing? Are we moving as quickly as we prudently can? How do we balance the need for trials that make sure that drugs don't do uh, damage, uh, don't have counter effect, mm -hmm. effects. Uh, how are we doing with the drug yeah. treatment? Such an important question. And, you know, I think we all recognize that until we actually have 
effective drugs and a vaccine, importantly, you know, will still be sort of stalling for time trying to reduce the negative impact of of this um, ongoing pandemic. But effective drugs and ultimately a vaccine, you know, can really change the landscape. So I'll start with vaccines since that, you know, is the the sort of ultimate way of protecting against um, this novel coronavirus. And there has been a huge amount of mobilization to develop a new vaccine. There are many different types of vaccine candidates that are now in development, and some of them are quite promising. Some of them are using sort of new platforms for vaccines. They're sort of um, more novel in terms of their development, but hold a lot of promise. And some of them are more like traditional uh, vaccines. But there are, you know, now dozens of different vaccine candidates uh, in development. And one of the challenges will be, in addition to how quickly can we study them to know, you know, which are the most promising, um, how will we decide which ones should go into the broader um, uh, clinical trials to actually test whether they work? And then how can we also go from candidate vaccines through the scale up and manufacturing that's ultimately going to be needed? Because we're going to need, you know, not just small batches of vaccines. We're going to need, you know, hundreds of millions of doses of vaccine um, as quickly as possible. And it takes time to develop a vaccine. You do need, you know, first you need to develop it um, in the laboratory and test it in in uh, animal models, um, and then you have to to test it for safety in people, and then you need to to test it against the disease. But that is an area where there's enormous promise. But you know, there are going to be bumps along the way, and there are going to be concerns. There's going to be disappointments. Um, but but I I do think that we will ultimately have the tool that we need. Should I take a break, or you want me to go on to well, drugs? I, I actually have a an audience question. Audience okay. questions are starting to come in now from the YouTube broadcast. Uh, what changes is the FDA making in speeding up the review process for vaccines or drugs? Are you concerned about going too fast? Well, I, you know, the challenge for FDA has always been, um, you know, how do you balance uh, robust scientific assessment of both safety and efficacy of a of a new um, drug or vaccine uh, with speed? And we used to sometimes joke at the FDA that there are only two speeds of approval: too fast and too slow. Um, but the truth is that over the years, and I certainly spent a lot of time on this when I was at the FDA, Mm. we have really tried to to streamline and modernize regulatory pathways for approval, working closely with the developers of products to make sure that from the get-go, the right studies are done, that they understand what are going to be the critical questions that will be asked and, and need to be answered, and to make sure that we're applying, you know, the most effective uh, tools for regulatory review um, as as we move forward, 
And so it's not the approval time that I worry about as much as the how do we speed the development time. And of course, in an emergency situation, you you always have to be balancing benefits and risks. But but, you, you know, there are accommodations that are made to move things um, out into the field more quickly, et cetera. And so I have been impressed in this uh, pandemic response, as well as I was during um, Ebola and, and the Zika responses, that the, 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 the FDA and other regulatory authorities around the world were really leaning in trying to help find the pathways forward. And that's very, very important and will make a difference. There's been a lot of work on trying to develop much more innovative ways of designing clinical trials so that they can move forward more quickly. One example that's in place now, actually, for drug therapies for COVID-19 is it is uh, something that's called the solidarity trial, which WHO is is actually um, helping to spearhead, and it's taking place in many countries around the world. And it's looking at at it has multiple arms. It's looking at multiple different therapies against one control, so that that we can get answers about a whole range of of different therapeutic interventions. Um, from one trial. And that's, you know, that's very important. Also looking at kind of um, telescoping a little bit the way clinical trials traditionally were done uh, so that we don't have the phase one, phase two, phase three that we traditionally have had um, with phase one being the safety and then phase three being the very large scale clinical studies and uh, phase two being the sort of in-between land where you're trying to assess um, more about, you know, how the product works and what should be the right dose and all of that. So so really being able to, to move more quickly. But the safety is important because sometimes people think that if you're facing the threat of a severe disease, anything is better than nothing. But that isn't true. You can make a person who's seriously ill worse and also, if you really want to make a difference for patients now and in the future, we need to know what works and what doesn't. And if the studies aren't done in a controlled way with good science, we'll end up at the end of this um, pandemic not knowing any more about how best to really treat and manage it. People are talking about needing 18 months to develop a, an effective vaccine. Do you think that's the right time frame? Could it happen more quickly? Well, you know, the sad truth is 18 months may be optimistic, um, but I think everybody wants to set records here. And already, you know, a record has been set um, from the time that the genome of this novel coronavirus was posted by scientists in China to the first uh, test of a vaccine in humans, it was nine weeks, and that is a record. Um, people are pushing very, very hard. People are trying to really examine all of the uh, uh, things that could slow progress and ways that we could actually streamline the research and development and the review process. It's it's a huge sort of team 
effort, which I think, you know, is just what's needed. And it's very encouraging to see. And in addition, and this is really important, people forget, you know, that there's more to just doing the research, finding a vaccine, and even the testing and regulatory approval is actually scaling up and manufacturing it. And that isn't easy. And, you know, we talked about that we're going to need an awful lot of vaccine. And right now, we don't have the capacity to make vaccine at those levels, along with all the other vaccines that we will continue to need for routine purposes. And so trying to figure out now how we're going to scale for what ultimately will be needed will save us a lot of time in the long run. So. Um the um in terms of uh being able to uh get make a vaccine available what would you suggest to that we put in place in terms of manufacturing capability distribution capability what do we need to do to be ready for the scale that we need to provide it at well you know uh- a lot of those things, as I said, are actually happening now and it's encouraging. But, you know, this is, again, another place where we have to have a public-private partnership to make sure that the resources are there to fund the studies that are needed uh, to to um, build the manufacturing capacity and the fill and finish capacity and then to to distribute it as well. And that's going to be a major challenge both to um, – ensure equitable distribution to make sure that the the process of of distribution as as this new vaccine becomes available is is fair and appropriate um and addressing the needs of the ongoing outbreak um as well as making sure that this isn't a vaccine that only you know rich countries or the elite can get access to. So there, there are, you know, a lot of, of steps from the first efforts to develop a new vaccine to actually having it make a difference in the real world, especially in the midst of an ongoing crisis. What about treatments and saving lives today? Remdesivir seems to have had some good initial results, including Patient one up in Seattle who was apparently treated with it, it may have helped mitigate symptoms. Uh, it's a Gilead Sciences drug uh, from here in the Bay Area. Right. Uh, but they have apparently, uh, it was being used through compa- compassionate use. Uh, then they withdrew the compassionate use due to the demands on their supply. And then it was rated as an orphan drug. What's going on with remdesivir? How promising a treatment is it? And what's happening with Gilead and the FDA and the classification of it, if it's promising to try to make it available as widely as possible? Well, let's step back. You know, there are many different um, potential drug treatments for COVID-19 and, you know, different classes. There are antiretrovirals and remdesivir is that. There are uh, drugs that address some of the um, immune components of uh, the response to uh, the viral infection. Uh, there are drugs that are that are being repurposed that show some 
activity against the virus in a test tube or in animal cells like hydroxychloroquine and chloroquine. Um, and there's, there's um, drugs that um, sort of create uh, within the body uh, the antibodies that um, would be protective against the the virus, sort of a cross between a drug and a vaccine. So there, there are many different uh, drugs that are in development. But as I was saying, you know, you you cannot know from an isolated patient whether it works or not. You have no idea whether that patient would have gotten better without the drug. Maybe they would have even gotten better faster without the drug, or maybe it was the drug that made all the difference. The only way to know is to do some controlled studies so that you can actually get some definitive answers so that you can help um, patients in a in as meaningful a way as possible. And that's why we have to be doing studies quickly. We want to get as many people into appropriate studies as possible. And there will be patients who don't fit within the study designs um, and when possible, get them access to uh, drugs through compassionate use. Um, but we we really have to be careful about not letting our our hopes and our wishes and our concern cloud the importance of data about what really works. So um, Bill Gates today put uh, talked about his prescription for what we ought to be doing, which included uh, consistent standards for shutdowns around the country. Uh, do you agree with him? that we need consistent and more uh, stringent uh, guidelines because people move from different one area to another. Uh, should we be having a nationwide shutdown on the order of what we have here in the Bay Area? The shutdown, of course, is very difficult. And it's something, you know, that was completely unexpected and unanticipated, you know, even a matter of weeks ago. Um, but it, it is important. Right now, it's the most important tool we have to slow the spread of this virus and to reduce um, the number of sick people who need care and really support the ability of, of those who are sick to get care. So it is, it is not a trivial undertaking to put those measures in place, but it is our best um, uh, approach at the present time. And that even though we worry about the social disruptions and the economic impacts that come with it, we cannot have a healthy economy. We cannot have a healthy society until we address and, and uh, conquer this virus. So I think he is right. I think it's, it's, it's a little bit hard for a place that isn't really experiencing a lot of COVID-19 disease to understand why they have to do this. But there are a couple things there. Number one, we don't know what the background of, of, of infection actually already is in their community. They may be at an early stage because we don't have enough testing to know. And they may, you know, 10 days, two weeks from now, be experiencing a very different situation. And we also know that that people move around and the virus moves around and an area that in fact doesn't have a lot of infection and disease 
could very quickly develop it. And we've seen that happen in various places around the world. So I think it is important to have a consistent strategy. Some places may need to be more aggressive, but the basic concept of, of, you know, good infectious disease control with the addition of social distancing is absolutely crucial uh, for our nation at this time. And, you know, we really are all in it together. So the advice about wearing masks seems to be changing now, uh, where a number of uh, folks are saying, uh, medical professionals and others, that if the masks are available, it would really cut down on the communication of the virus for people to wear masks. Should we all be wearing masks now? Well, that is a bit of a complicated question. You know, the doctrine has always been to warn against people believing that they can be protected by wearing masks that are really not designed for that purpose and that, you know, don't fit the face properly and the, the you know, the virus, um, you know, could penetrate, you know, not wanting to give people a sense of, of false protection. But certainly putting a mask on an individual who's known to be sick because it does limit spread and certainly providing healthcare workers that can have uh, considerable exposure and unexpected exposures as well um, uh, is very important. And in a world where we are resource constrained with respect to masks, it becomes also a question of allocation of scarce resources and not wanting uh, people to take masks away from those where it is truly medically indicated and essential to limiting spread and protecting uh, uh, people from, you know, a clear and present risk of exposure. But, in fact, I don't see a lot of harms in in people taking more respiratory precautions by wearing masks. I don't want a buyout and hoarding by the public of masks needed in our healthcare system, and that is part of the challenge, as I said. But and it's a little bit, you know, kind of strange to me, having trained in you know one of the most sophisticated medical systems in the world that we're talking about people wearing bandanas and making their own masks at home. But, but I think, you know, a couple of things. One is it, it, it may well help with community spread because we know more now than we did at the beginning of this um, COVID-19 outbreak that asymptomatic individuals can spread disease. So it may play an important role there. It, it may also be a, a good reminder to people about the seriousness of this concern, the importance of not just wearing the mask, but all of the other elements of infection control and protection, including the social distancing. And some people think it's helpful if you have a mask on, it reminds you not to touch your face. Others point out that maybe you actually keep adjusting the mask and it might be worse. But I think overall, you know, it's 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 not a it's not a silver bullet when it comes to protection. Don't don't get misled that that it's an answer and you can now, you know, go to uh dance parties, but um 
but I think it 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 can add another element of of protection in a in a, a world that that is frightening and where there is risk. So how will this pandemic end? What's the the path if we do the right things and so on? How will it end? Well, I wish I knew, and of course there are various models to help inform that question. But I think there's a huge amount of uncertainty. This is a novel virus, and we're learning about it every day, and we certainly don't know what to expect from it going forward um, in important areas like will it mutate? Um, Probably when viruses mutate, they become a little bit uh, less threatening, uh, less infectious, less lethal, um, but it could go the other way. And importantly, does it have a seasonal aspect where with warmer weather, it might start to to wane a bit. But um, more importantly, I think how we behave and, and the nature and quality of our ongoing response will make a difference. And I think we have to stick with what we're doing now in a consistent way in terms of the social distancing and the the other measures we've talked about. We have to support our healthcare system so that it can can you know really manage the patients coming into it and reduce the number of deaths. And we have to really build up the various tools we need to enable us to have a better assessment through testing of the contours of the epidemic in terms of background rates of of infection um, and recovery using the antibody test that we talked about before, developing a game plan for how to, you know, begin to have individuals re-entering um, the workforce, returning to school, et cetera. But I think we can be pretty sure, given that we are in the midst of a pandemic with a previously unknown virus that um, no one had immunity to, that it will continue to find um, places to harbor amongst us and in this country and around the world, that it will not completely wane, burn out and go away either in warmer weather or on its own. And that uh, we will, you know, continue to see it maybe in surges or maybe it will become, you know, sort of background noise. But I think we will be, you know, living with this virus uh, for a while, and we have to uh, continue our efforts to find the treatments and ultimately the vaccine, that will make it a very different kind of infectious disease threat to manage and control. Unfortunately, it's the time for our last question. We, I have many questions. Um, let's talk about New York for a moment. Uh, why did it take New York so long to shut down restaurants and bars? How, what do you think of what's going on in New York, how they're handling the coronavirus? Well, I think that in a situation like this, an outbreak uh, with an unknown pathogen or a known pathogen, you're always balancing um, 
risks and benefits. Uh, you're always trying to assess um, the magnitude and urgency of the problem and how best to respond. It's not easy and it's easy to look back and be critical, um, but there are a lot of unknowns and uncertainties. I think the lack of testing made it hard to recognize initially just how serious the problem was. And I think that New York State and New York City really deserve credit for uh, how they're handling um, you know, this, this devastating disease and, and how they have really, uh, mobilized to address, you know, all of the different elements of, of need. Uh, New York State, you know, rapidly, uh, developed its own test that it began to use, you know, not as fast as anyone would have wanted, but, you know, you know, impressively fast in the context that, um, existed. They have been out front in terms of trying to prepare their healthcare system uh, for the surge. I think they have been working well with both um, the private sector and and um, and the government in these efforts. And you you really have to applaud the governor for his communication uh, about what's going on. He's made himself very, very available. He's been very straight and very clear about the challenges ahead, but he has laid out the path forward. And, um, and I think that that has given, you know, a lot of, um, confidence to the people in New York about what is going on and, and really brought out the best in people at a time when there could have been a lot of panic. But we are not done yet, and New York City is clearly leading the way in the United States in terms of number of cases and, um, uh, you know, severe consequences for the city, both in terms of, of health and well-being, but also the social and economic disruption. So it's, 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 it's both terrible to watch, but you can get inspiration watching how people are rising to the occasion and the difference that that can make. So I just want to say that I hope our universities, think tanks, foundations get going on plans for pandemic planning, how we should uh, organize our government, our private sector, how we should uh, proceed to learn from this episode. And I very much hope that you're a major part of those efforts because you have a great deal of knowledge and experience to bring to this area. I just want to thank you, Dr. Margaret Hamburg, former commissioner of the FDA, former chief health official for the city of New York, for being with us today. Thanks to all our viewers on the internet. Stay tuned for more Commonwealth Club online programs. You can find the list at commonwealthclub.org online. So Dr. Hamburg in Washington, me in my living room in Santa Clara, California. It's been wonderful to talk with you. And again, thank you for all of your service in this area. And again, I hope you will continue to uh, stimulate change and a better way of planning and getting ready for pandemics in the future. Well, thank you very much. Thank you for the privilege of being with you and your Commonwealth Club uh, viewers. Thank you, Dr. Hamburg. And again, thanks to everyone. And this online program of the Commonwealth Club is now over. Thank you. 
You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org slash donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support.